Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Boris Johnson's legacy. He was the Prime Minister who promised to get Brexit done, who oversaw the UK's response to Covid and he promised a levelling up agenda. He was also forced to stand down, let us not forget, in disgrace, laid low by a series of scandals that pointed to his dishonesty and lack of judgment. We'll be joined by Andrew Scott, a.k.a. Otto English, whose best-selling book, Ten Great Lies and How They Shaped the World, included a chapter dedicated to Boris's porkies. What? I hear you cry? Only a chapter? First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account, Because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. There is no corporate interest or millionaire backer, no non-dom telling us what to say. So please, if you can, subscribe to the Byline Times. You'll get details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. So then to Boris Johnson's legacy, uh, Andrew stroke Otto, how do you honestly think he'll be remembered? I think he'll be remembered differently by different people. So I think there will be a hardcore cult of Boris, which will grow going forward and propagate and prosper. And that will be the sort of Boris loyalists and Conservative Party members of the future who will remember him uh, and who will prop up his memory as this guy who delivered the vaccine rollout, who delivered Brexit, who did all of these marvellous, wonderful things. And and then was done out of his throne by nebulous, evil Remainers and a, and a consortium of Conservatives who stabbed him in the back. So there will be those people, certainly. I think we should remember him as the Prime Minister he was, a man who singularly failed to live up to the hot air of his promises and the promises of other people, and who failed as a Prime Minister, you know, he modelled himself on Churchill, but really he was Nero. He was fiddling with his fancy wallpaper as the country burned. So I think he should be remembered that way. And I think history will remember him that way. But having dipped myself up to my neck in history over the last few years and looking at political reputations, I have no doubt that people and people are already manoeuvring to place him as one of the great prime ministers of the post-war period when he was nothing of the sort. Mm. And he promised to get Brexit done. And the truth is that Brexit hasn't really yet been done, has it? I mean, the fact that we have this ongoing row over the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example, which means that for the time being anyway, Northern Ireland remains within the European Union, at least in a trading sense, and that's causing deep division within Northern Ireland itself, proves that Brexit actually hasn't even now been done. Yeah, well, they can't solve that problem. They can't, no, they can't solve it and keep the union together. You can't be a unionist and resolve the issue of Northern Ireland. So I often trot the word zugzwang out. It's the move in chess where every move you make, you're doomed. And from the moment they signed their, their initial Brexit deal, it's been zugzwang a go go, you know, because every every move, every move they make on Brexit leads either to the country being poorer, or the people being worse off, or to more disadvantage. 
there's no way to resolve the problems around the Northern Ireland Protocol without causing damage to the people in Northern Ireland and without, you know, satiating the thirst of unionists for Northern Ireland to be within the union when it's got this unique geographical and political and economic position as our only land border with the EU. So they, they can't resolve it. It's a really stupid analogy, but it's one I trot out to my kids. It's like Johnson is the, you know, the local pyromaniac. He, he led the charge on the public library, poured petrol all over everything, set fire to the lot, and then promised to get a new library done. He was so fundamental in causing Brexit to happen, in backing the Vote Leave movement, in creating this massive mess that our country now faces. And he thought he could solve it with a soundbite and an allusion to pricking a microwave meal and getting it done. Anybody who's taken any time to look at any depth at the crisis that has been created around Brexit can see that it's a massively complex issue that would take decades to resolve. Again, I hate it. I hate nothing more than people calling me a Ramona or Remainer. There's no Remainers or Ramonas left because we've left the European Union. It's about what is best for this country. And Boris Johnson, from backing Vote Leave onwards, has just done dreadful things to this country. And the the Conservatives, the self-styled patriots and guardians of the flame of the nation, have set fire to it. One of the successes claimed for him is the UK's pioneering work in developing a vaccination programme during COVID. But against that, even when we're talking about COVID, you have to balance the many thousands of deaths in care homes after patients were discharged from hospitals, elderly patients in the main, who were not then tested for COVID before going back into care homes. And certainly our per capita death rate from COVID was worse than that of many other developed nations. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think there is always a danger in saying that somebody did nothing good, you know, and and very, yes, belatedly, they did get the vaccination rollout going. And, and, you know, we all got the jabs that we needed in our our arms. But so did most other European countries. (laughs) And, And in addition, it wasn't a race. Coronavirus was not the European championship. This notion that we were somehow in competition with everybody else as to how we dealt with this global pandemic is part of the problem. Johnson early on talked about sort of bespoke solutions and how he'd get big brand names like Rolls-Royce to make masks and to make breathing apparatus and all this kind of stuff, like it was a sort of competition. The pandemic demonstrated once again how nations need to work together, whether that's part of the European Union or part of global alliances. And too often they treated it like a running race. And as you say, yes, they rolled out the vaccinations, but at the same time, 205,000 people died during the pandemic. That is an enormous loss. And by any metric, if you compare it to our neighbours in Europe, we top the poll in death. Now, again, for, there, are re- there are reasons behind that which are more than just mismanagement. But mismanagement and the slow reaction of the government right at the start of the pandemic, the failure to take it seriously, the failure to get the message across, Johnson's own actions, shaking hands, 
sort of trying to brush it off in the early stages, I think definitely contributed to the scale of the crisis. He didn't take it seriously and therefore the government didn't take it seriously and therefore to some extent the nation didn't take it seriously. He treated the pandemic like he treated Brexit, a sort of irritation that got in the way of him building his bridges to nowhere and his, his sort of grand... And then there's a tweet from January 2020, which he set out, say, something along the lines of, this is going to be a fabulous year with him holding his thumbs up. Like, you could just will a better country just by the force of your personality and ruffled hair. But of course, <laughs> politics is far more complicated and serious a matter than that. But fundamentally, Johnson was brought down by his actions during the pandemic, by his lack of seriousness and by his sort of laissez-faire attitude to the rules which he himself had brought in. And that's the scandal. And that's what, you know, I've talked to you before, Adrian, about how I lost my mother and my father-in-law during the pandemic. And in my father-in-law's case, he still hasn't had a funeral two years after he died because they couldn't hold a funeral for him and we haven't been able to arrange one since. So me and my family and everybody else were taking this threat seriously and Johnson didn't think the rules applied to him. And that, that is why I think I will probably hate Boris Johnson to my dying day. There are politicians I dislike, but when I think of the socially distanced funeral I had to hold for my mum, in the very month that a lot of those parties were going on in Downing Street, uh, my dear mother, with her, her huge number of friends and family who would have liked to celebrate her life, and we all stood socially distanced from each other whilst they were partying Downing Street. It's that contempt for ordinary people that goes to the heart of who Boris Johnson is, and that's why he deserves our contempt. I've heard similar stories as well, and they're all sad ones from a listener called Safia Ngar, who's contributed to the podcast in the past from Nazir Afzal, the former Chief Crown Prosecutor for Northwest England. And I was unable to attend one of my best friend's funerals for exactly the same reasons that you outlined. And you look at these various features of his prime ministership and you think of Brexit, you think of the pandemic, and there's some interplay here because obviously the pandemic dealt a savage economic blow, not just to the UK, but to every developed nation and most developing nations as well. But if you factor the pandemic and Brexit and the economic impact of that, the decline in value of the pound, the loss of labour, which has led to massive labour shortages in many parts of the UK economy. To some extent, this was a whirlwind not of Johnson's making. To some extent, it was very much a whirlwind of his making. Yeah, I mean, I often have said since 2016 that the Brexit vote was the vote of a uh, people who assumed that because everything had been safe and secure and that their lives were going well and that they had plentiful food on their shelves, they could break up something which seemed unimportant and that life would just continue on and that there were no threats to their security or safety or, or lifestyle any perusal of history showed that we had lived through a period of unequaled prosperity and post-war peace and security there, there is no nothing comparable in the history for the british people and that risk 
that you assume that nothing bad will come over the horizon and you can kind of tinker with the controls on your the SS Great Britain and that a tsunami won't come and hit you and knock you flying with perfect timing was upended by the pandemic and Putin's actions by invading Ukraine. Cameron was mocked widely in 2016 when he said that you couldn't take your security and say, you know, your, your security and peace for granted. And the, all those idiots piled in going, oh, Project Fear, David Cameron says there's going to be a World War Three. ha, 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 ha. Well, who's laughing now? You know, as our, not just in the threat to our security, but as our prices rocket as a result also of the war in Ukraine. We have had a very salutary lesson in the need for peace, security and harmony in our region. And Britain was very lucky. And the, the people who have grown up since the 1970s onwards have overwhelmingly been very lucky to live through this period and to have such prosperity. Now, of course, not everybody benefited from that prosperity. And of course, that lies to some extent at the root of the loss of the Red Wall for Labour and the Brexit vote. But the catastrophe that has been visited on us has been then followed by these other catastrophes like shockwaves to our prosperity, economy and safety. And that's what we need to somehow claw back. And I really don't know how we do it, to be honest. Asked uh, listeners via the Byline Times podcast Twitter stream to sum up the Johnson prime ministership in five words or less. I'll just give you a few samples, uh, Andrew, if you don't mind. Normal-minded person says poverty, recession, criminality, corruption, cronyism. Kirsty Cusack says a distrusted and broken Britain. Uh, Dante Banks, division, hatred and economic collapse. Mark Webster, bullshitting, conniving, awful human being. Sandra Guest, abject failure in every role. I have to say there's not an awful amount of support on the uh, Byline Times Twitter stream for him, but I'll come to that in a moment. This is Paul, who says he wore he wore a soldier's uniform. Uh, Loza the Angel says beer, butter, batter, Brexit, bollocks. <laughs> and Cy Tai says more Benny Hill than Churchill. <laughs> so, wow. But wow. And, and of course, you might expect, I, I don't know, the readers of the Byline Times Twitter stream to come out with a, a stream of invective like that. He was mocked on... Have I Got News For You, the Boris Johnson tribute, and uh, Joe Lycett in uh, mocking his successor, Liz Trust, on Laura Kunzberg's new BBC show, managed to invoke the uh, the anger of the Daily Mail, of all things, and get onto the front page. Because Johnson does have his cheerleaders in the press, the Mail, the Sun, the Telegraph, of course, and he also has still massive residual support within the Conservative Party, perhaps not in the public at large. And Adam Bienkov, our political editor, has been very persistent in pointing this out, that although there is this myth of Johnson appealing to the Red Wall, well, it, it wasn't once a myth, it was, it was true. But it isn't true anymore, according to the polling. But within his own party, within his own core party membership, He's apparently more popular than either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. So why is he still so popular? Yeah, I really, I, I really don't, I really don't get it. But, but maybe I never will. You know, I, 
I've long, I, I, you know, I, again, I've said this to you before, but as you know, I went to a boarding school. I didn't go to a boarding school that was as posh as Eton, but I went to a boarding school that left in the late 80s. So I'm a bit younger than Johnson and co, but, I, but I'm of that, just about of that vintage. There were Boris Johnsons and Jacob Rees-Mogg's in, in my school, to a penny, sort of self-promoting people who were very good at debating club and who sort of wafted around like, you know, they were the, like they owned the place. I think I saw through Johnson from the start because I just saw him as another one of those people who could bluff and sort of, who treated the whole world like it was an enormous public school. He went from boarding school to Oxford and on and on into politics, really, and of course, journalism, but pretty swiftly. He's never really existed outside of that world. And they, that cult of people who follow him are the same sort of people who would say, oh, aren't they marvellous? Aren't they wonderful? Aren't they so witty and all this kind of thing? I've never, nothing Johnson has ever said has been truly memorable or smart or clever. He's not an original thinker or, uh, or a great mind. He, he's just that bluffing public schoolboy made man. There's probably a Peter Pan analogy in there, the Peter Pan of Eton, you know. I find it wholly depressing that, that people still buy into it. I was on a BBC local radio station about two months ago, and they invited on the leader of a local Conservative Party group. And she was a very friendly sounding woman. But when I dared to suggest that Boris Johnson had partied at Downing Street or that he hadn't been the world's best prime minister, she almost went into a sort of meltdown of rage, going no, 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 to, to pretty much everything I felt I was reasonably saying. And that's cults, isn't it? It's, it's the cult of Boris Johnson. And of course, we know that he partied at Downing Street. He has been fined for that. So that is a matter of public record. That's undeniable. Exactly. <laughs> but people won't believe the truth if it's shoved in front of your face. <laughs> you know, people would rather believe in the myth of the man, even whilst the man is in office. As I say, I, there's nothing that I can think of. And, and I have tried that Boris Johnson has ever said that it is clever or original. And there's nothing he's done as a I mean apart from the, the rollout of the vaccination but any half decent leader of any country would have tried to roll out the vaccination swiftly that was clearly the path out so I don't think we should all stand around and clap him for doing the one thing that you would expect a, a leader to do in the first place he's a hero in Ukraine on the Byline Times podcast recently, we heard how in 2018, when Ukraine appealed for arms and was given significant assistance from the United States, the United Kingdom was rather more reluctant to offer help at that time. Now, latterly, of course, following the invasion, as it were, of the rest of Ukraine, Johnson has stepped up, which is one reason why he's immensely popular in Ukraine. But the war in Ukraine did not start in February 2022. It started back in 2014. For many of those years, the Conservative Party and Johnson remained close to Russian donors, in Johnson's case, to people like Evgeny Lebedev, the son of the former KGB agent Alexander Lebedev. So even that part of his legacy, I think, is very open to question, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. 
the relationship between Johnson and Lebedev was, was bothering me three, four years ago. I wrote a series of articles for Byline Times about it and about Johnson going from the NATO summit, I think it was in Brussels, straight to Lebedev's house where he partied without his security detail when he was foreign secretary. It was bothering me. It was bothering John Sweeney first, I think. I think he was first on the scene with that story. But I wrote a series of articles. I got called a conspiracy theorist, a racist, because I dared to question this clearly very questionable relationship between the Johnson family and the Lebedevs. And I was appalled, actually, that other journalists didn't pick up on it uh, until very recently. And one of the reasons they didn't pick up on it, of course, is because Lebedev owns newspapers and might own others at some point in the future. And people are worried about jobs and getting work. So you, you have this sort of cosy relationship between media moguls and government in which journalists aren't willing to call out what is obviously something that is very inappropriate because they're fearful of their own future prospects. As to Zelensky's brilliant management of what we could, I suppose, call the information war between Russia and Ukraine, Zelensky has not just reached out to the UK and not just praised Boris Johnson. I was reading uh, a couple of weeks ago about the way in which Zelensky has reached out to people in Japan, for example, and praised the Japanese government for their help in Ukraine. But we don't read about that in the British media because everybody's fawning over Boris Johnson. Zelensky has been very good at tailoring his message to individual countries and, and to pampering the egos of leaders of them because it's naturally in his and his people's interests to get global attention, to get global help and to get those critical weapons that they need in order to defeat Putin's armies. Mm. I, so, think our um, own, I think our own political editor, Adam Bienkoff, as well, was on to the uh, Lebedev story very early. Should give him yes. some good credit as well. And you, know, you, you think of all these scandals that seem to have come and gone, and now certainly in terms of the Johnson-supporting newspapers that appear to have been forgotten, like the PPE cronyism scandal, which our own Byline Times, Sam Bright, has done so much to uncover. When you think of the, in the eyes of many people, hugely distasteful notion of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda for processing, I mean, against the very best traditions of tolerance in this country, according to many critics of that, Johnson was the prime minister while Priti Patel introduced that policy and he, he stood by it. And yet, and yet, there is talk of Johnson somehow building a war chest and coming back to be prime minister again, coming back to the front row of politics, much as Trump in the United States has suggested he might do. I just wonder whether you think that Perhaps when we're a couple of years down the line and we've had more chance to reassess Johnson's legacy, whether he, he ever really can be seen as making a comeback. I really can't say it. And the reason I can't say it is because his ego is bruised. He will be fine. He'll leave office. He'll get, I, I suspect, a number of big book deals and offers. And Johnson's always worried about money. Uh, and I think he will grow rich on this very brief 
period as prime minister and will probably become a celebrity figure in the United States. I mean, that, that's what that's what I'm uh, much as Churchill did, you know, I can imagine him shifting a lot of books and going on book tours and going on speech tours and raking the money in. And I can't then see him wanting to come back into the cut and thrust of politics. I also, and call me an optimist, Adrian, but I suspect that in two years' time, the Conservative Party will be entering a very, very long period in the political wilderness. I mean, obviously, we can't predict exactly what will happen, but my instinct will is that they have that they're running out of runway, running out of road, and Conservative Party will do that. There's no way Boris Johnson would want to leave lead the Conservative parties through its wilderness years. Uh, he's not a caretaker prime minister, uh, not a caretaker type leader either. So I can't see him coming back unless maybe aged 80 in, in sort of Winston Churchill fashion, he evinces some fabulous brief return, you know, as a grateful nation re-embraces him. <laughs> Otto, thank you. Otto English, aka Andrew Scott. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast. If you enjoyed listening, then please buy the Byline Times. Tag out a subscription because a subscription to the Byline Times not only gets you a brilliant monthly newspaper, it helps to pay for this podcast as well. You get details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And while we're at it, don't forget to check out the Bylines app on your smartphone, opening up the world of our regional bylines as well. They are well worth checking out. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.